0: Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopia and dystopia. That's a bit quicker and simpler than what I normally say, isn't it? Uh, my name is Paul and... This episode today is about a video game called Disco Elysium. Now, if you don't know, Disco Elysium is a detective RPG where you have various skills that you can invest in that affect how you can undertake your investigation. These skills each have effectively their own personality and they, they kind of speak to the character in his own mind like, the, and they become more... They'll come louder depending how many points you invest in them. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting system, a really interesting game that you're going to hear a bit more about. We'll get into more of, of describing what it's about when I get to talking to my guest. But just to say that this is a game that is uh, very explicitly political. It's a game that received a lot of praise for its setting and the history that it sketches out for that setting. Um, and, and it's And that setting is explicitly... I think, uh, meant to be read as a critique on a contemporary world. So this is a, a dystopia doing the classic work um, of dystopias. It's a very interesting game in and of itself, but but also, I think, um, an interesting example of a dystopia to, to look at. So joining me to talk about the game is going to be Cameron Kunzelman. He's been on the show a couple of times before. He came on to talk to me about, Uh, battle royale genre Uh, he also appeared on the episode i did about video game cities and places so yeah he's been on a couple of times um very relevant to this um particular to the subject of this particular episode so cameron is part of a kind of umbrella of video game content stuff called range touch which does a podcast called uh, game study study buddies um has a couple of youtube series including uh mages and murder dads stuff like that and as part of that they they're doing a playthrough of disco Elysium so uh if you if after listening to this you find you're very interested in the game or if you already know you're interested in the game and want to want to hear some more about it want to see some more of it then if you search for range touch on YouTube you should find them on there, and like I say, there's a they're they're doing a series running through that. Um, as I speak right this second, um, I've had a look. The first episode isn't up yet. So, however, Cameron did did say when I spoke to him that it was going to be coming very soon. So by the time you're hearing this, it may well already be there. Um, but yeah, have a look and check that out. I'm going to try and shorten all the plugs and all those info bits I normally do at the beginning of the show, but I'm just going to quickly say, if, you, uh, if you've if you been enjoying this podcast, you want to help support me to keep doing it, to do more, then please consider going to patreon.com slash utopian horizons, where you can get access to the the bonus episodes that I put out. Currently focusing on, uh, on um, running through chapters of economic science fictions, a watch through of snow and probably returning to to psycho Past, which i've i've already put out quite a few episodes on as well so yeah it'd be cool if you if you could check that out oh, oh actually one thing i'll say which i've forgot about uh thanks to uh hannah who emailed me a while ago um being very nice about the podcast and asking if i would consider doing an episode on frederick jameson um and he was particularly talking about the book, his book, Archaeologies of the Future, A Desire Called Utopia and Other Science Fictions. Obviously relevant to the podcast. Uh, you can tell just from the title. Um I mean H- Hannah I've already responded to, to Hannah. Um but yeah, if there's anyone else who thinks you'd like to hear an episode of Frederick James in some, some form, let me know. Um but I do want to do so Frederick Jameson wrote an essay called um it's also in book book form with like um some other essays in there from other writers, but um called An American Utopia, which is kind of like his plan to create a utopia basically through uh by conscripting everybody in the whole of America into the military, which um I know sounds very weird, but there is a kind of there's a kind of logic to it. And, um, yeah, I want to do an episode on that. So, yes, I am going to do something an episode on Frederick Jameson at some point. I don't know when yet, but hopefully this year, I would say. Um, so, yeah, thanks for the email, Hannah. It's nice to hear from people that I don't hear from people very often. So, and there's probably, yeah, there, ha- there has been one or two other people who have emailed me who I've probably forgotten to, to mention. So, sorry, but... Um, <laughs> yeah uh you can always get in touch on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com uh yeah that's enough of that let's get on to our conversation with cameron oh. joining me now is cameron kunzelman from range touch thank you much very much for joining me cameron thanks for having me so uh yeah this is um cameron's second appearance uh on the show we talked about um battle royales uh a long while ago and cameron's come back to me to talk to me about disco elysium which is a video game uh, that came out in 2019, um, which cameras recently, helpfully been been replaying for Range Touch, which if you don't know is a, um, Range Touch is kind of a, how would I describe it? An umbrella of things that encompasses like YouTube videos about games and a podcast about um, academic uh, game studies called Game Study Study Buddies. So there's lots of cool stuff there if you want to check out Range Touch. But anyway, um, Disco Elysium. Cameron, would you mind for people who are listening um, who who, uh, may not know what Disco Elysium is? um, I believe I have some listeners who who don't play video games. Could you give us a a brief overview of, of what this game is, what it's about?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and this is kind of a good little um, I don't know bridge to to talking about how I you know uh, kind of came to play it recently again mm-hmm. um, you know so I'm part of Range Touch and my co-host Danny and I for this show i got got a few co-hosts for a few different things but for this show Mages and Murder Dads that we do uh, we have been playing for years now uh, the kind of Baldur's Gate isometric RPGs isometric role playing games. Um, and they're kind of uh I don't know um long line of of uh children <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for lack of a better better uh word um and so so I would say that that disco Elysium is uh, what we would call an isomet- isometric isometric role playing game, um meaning that it's kind of top down. you're looking at these little model characters that are running around, kind of looks like I don't know like a little kind of a dollhouse uh, universe. Mm-hmm. And within this kind of whole genre, the, the deal has always been, you know, um, within PC gaming that it really privileges, um, uh, you know, character choices. It really privileges interesting kind of fantastical worlds. And so um, the big interlocutor text, I think, for Disco Elysium is this game Planescape Torment that came out in the end of the 1990s. Planescape Torment was set in a D&D universe, a Dungeons and Dragons universe. If people aren't familiar with that. So role-playing, uh, an established role-playing game mm. uh, kind of um, uh, setting. Planescape is all about kind of uh, things beyond what you would normally think D&D is doing. So it's about moving beyond the planes. It takes place in a place called Sigil, the City of Doors, which has doors that lead to everywhere in the universe kind of all at once. Um, there are these, uh, you know, kind of metaphysical concepts like greed or... I don't know, um, uh, the, the will to power who then get embodied in individual characters. And so it's this kind of like Jungian, uh, Freudian, uh, psychoanalysis space stapled onto, <laughs>
0: um,
1: D and D. Um, so it's a little bit weird, uh, but it's always been praised, you know, for, for 20 years now, um, as kind of the high watermark for player choice in video games, because, um, you can play most of the game. It's, it's kind of hard to do it, but you can play most of the game without ever engaging in combat, for example, and you can, uh, talk your way through the final boss rather than, you know, fighting them. So kind of, uh, stood out in the world of video games, or at least in the, the big, broad imagination about video games mm-hmm. when it came out. So I say all of that to say that Disco Elysium and uh, is kind of, um, the artistic payoff in some ways for those moves 20 years ago. Because disco Elysium takes that idea you know what if the isometric role playing game uh were radicalized away from combat or radicalized away from um I don't know the kind of political core of sword and sorcery stuff and then set in the and then those systems and that kind of mode of visual presentation, what if it were set in service to something else, which is that instead of it being between uh you know combat between humans and goblins or whatever, right? Or, you know, elves and dwarves. Mm. What if this uh, whole system and way of looking at the universe and way of kind of representing things in video games was put into service to thinking through one city block um, and, or maybe a little bit wider than that, one section of a city. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so it's a role-playing game in that broad sense of, of you are playing a character who has stats and skills But those stats and skills don't work like any other game of its genre. Um, There's not a focus on combat. I I think the vast majority of the game, um, anytime you're trying to get into some sort of combat scenario, there's maybe six or seven instances where you can do that. Your chances of failure is extremely high. Mm. Um, You are really encouraged to use your senses, whether those are kind of body phenomenological senses or these kind of extra sensory things like Inland Empire, uh, which is a skill that you can build up that kind of lets you see the world behind the world. Mm. Uh, you're encouraged to use those to interpret the world and deal with it. And all of that is to say um, that 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 isometric RPG system and then these kind of stats that are a little bit weirder, you know, ways of engaging with the world that are a little bit weirder are put uh, into a context where you are solving a murder mystery. And so a... Person has been killed and uh, hanged from a tree, and it is your job, uh, after you wake up after a um, a, a, a legendary bender, apparently, yeah. um, you know, completely, uh, uh, you know, you have amnesia, no memory, and you have to kind of reconstruct yourself and then solve this murder and disco elysium gives you a very open <laughs> a very open sandbox in which to attempt to maybe try to do those two things although you can fail to do either if you choose um over the course of the 20 hours or so of the game
0: cool uh yeah thanks for that very very nice uh, bit of history added in there as well as well as a particular setting of this um i'll just give a couple couple more details uh so as you mentioned solving in a murder and this takes place in uh, a city called revico or revishol i don't know how you say it uh specifically a district called martinez uh and this is uh what's called uh, a special administrative region so at, at some point there was a revolution that took place that was put down and this this re- uh city is now um effectively governed by other nations um and it's uh enforced as like a free market capitalist system. This was formerly a communist revolution. It's now a free market capitalist system. And this particular district is is one of uh, extreme poverty. Um so that's the place uh where we are. Yeah, as you mentioned, a very unique skill system where you have stuff like uh yeah, inland empire, as you mentioned, which is kind of like being cosmically tuned to yeah, the the, the world be behind the world as you you put it, stuff like logic. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other one now. Shivers, which is like a attunement mm-hmm. to the city or something like that. So yeah, just to say unusual yeah. skills even typically find, where we used to like strength and defence and things like that.
1: Yeah, you can tell that they were very clearly attempting to get away from, you know, those kinds of, you know, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and, and its holdover, you know, strength, dexterity, intelligence or whatever, right? Mm. You know, Shivers, which you just mentioned, is such a weird example because it is in the the skill category of physique, so it has to do with the body, but Shivers is a skill that allows you to feel with your body things that are happening in the city, mm. And so, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, one of the, what I would call like the film noir skills, right? Because sometimes you'll be having a conversation and within that conversation, there's an automatic shivers roll and you'll, and you will get information that your body just knows Mm. from somewhere far away, um, that gives context to the conversation that you're having. And so, you know, that's just not a thing that's happening in other RPGs in a broad sense, you know, they're not thinking, I don't know. It, uh, generically, you know, in the sense of genre, um, they're they're not. Le- they are leaning into their own genre. Disco Elysium is using some of the tools of the role playing game to lean into other aesthetic traditions and fields. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's part of what's so exciting about it.
0: Yeah, uh, and I should say all these skills are all effectively characters. Like they all have their own voice, and they all. So, so the the more um, points you invested in them to upgrade them, the the kind of louder they become in your head almost. So, as Cameron said, while you're talking to someone, your skills will be kind of popping up in your head and giving like their opinion on what, how they interpret what's happening or what they think you should do. They're trying to, some of the skills will try and push you to do certain things. So, yeah, they they all have a yeah. So they're all effectively characters. And yeah, I don't know about you, but I, f- I find it to be a really really interesting system, and it really kind of fascinated me the degree to which it could change your experience as you tweak the skills. Like just the way, just the, like if you upgrade shivers, for example, just walking from place to place becomes very different because you, you your skill will pop up a lot to like give you context about where where you are and what what you're walking past and stuff like this. So uh i thought that was very cool and interesting but yeah so this is a dystopian depiction of reality as i said this is a very um very poor district this this um this uh city as i said is is uh, is controlled by other nations it doesn't appear to be a particularly beneficial setup for the people that that live there and as you move around the district you can see it's kind of dilapidated and not in good condition, you encounter a lot of poverty, you encounter alcoholics and you encounter child abuse and you encounter all these uh awful things as you as you move for it so not not a particularly nice place um and I would interpret this as being um personally as being a pre obviously anti capitalist critique uh very much aimed at our current moment. Um, I would suggest that the 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 kind of setup we're seeing in terms of the the structure of the government and so on is, is is aimed at uh neoliberal capitalism. Um there's a lot of stuff in there dealing with the kind of cynicism of of uh a kind of depiction of a, of a cynical centrism in terms of the people in charge, the degree to which they believe the the kind of principles that are supposed to underpin what they do it, it kind of looks a bit like a reminded me of uh like naomi klein shock doctrine kind of idea in terms of how um a crisis has been used to create the, the free free market conditions that the capitalists favor um so yeah would is that do you do you see this as being a game that's aimed at the kind of political context we have now a, a, a game aimed at neoliberalism and and critiquing that is that how you see it and do you think it's effective uh, in doing that i hmm,
1: interesting <laughs> uh, um, i i do think it is doing that right and i think that broadly i mean one of the first one of the first words you used is anti-capitalist right mm-hmm. and, I, and i do think that it is a broadly anti-capitalist game um you know something that after this comes out (laughs) and if people want to check it out the first episode's not out yet but um the reason that we were playing for um range touch and for our show mages and murder dads the reason that we were playing uh disco elysium was to kind of like walk through our feelings about it so we recorded 10 episodes the first one's not out yet but the series is going to start coming out soon and um so, if you're interested in anything I'm about to say, I'm, I'm saying this as a preface. Mm. If you're interested in anything I'm about to say, you can listen to me talk about it for 10 hours <laughs> <laughs> to hear my, like, my, my literally, like, you know, episode by episode development of my thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, if you're inter- if you, if someone is listening and you, and you think, oh, he's just wrong, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I promise you there is a place where you can hear an extreme amount of of uh detail about how I get to this uh this this point. But so that's all to say. Uh you know, I'm saying that before I drop this. I think it's anti-capitalist, but I think it's also deeply uh cynical uh in a broad sense, and I think that it is um narcissistic in some ways. Um and and I say that because I think this is what we on the the, the show several times uh, we call um, disco Elysium South Park problem because disco Elysium is very good at calling other people idiots and calling basically all political ide- ideologies, just pure idiocy. Mm-hmm. But it is not very good at uh, saying anything uh, 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 pro any political program. And that's fine. Like, I don't think that that's necessarily a, like, obligation of art to, like, directly come out in explicit defense of something. Um, but it, it seems like everywhere you turn in Disco Elysium, in Martinez in general, right? So so you're right. You know, you've got this, the Moral Intern, which is this kind of combination EU-IMF organization that, that keeps everything in, you know, kind of in a... I, I don't know, in a stable state for the extraction of wealth and labor, you know, so that this international group can kind of do that. Um, uh, you've got uh, the communards who failed. There are, um, and, and there's some kind of remnants of those people around. You've got uh, royalists who who are still holding on uh, since before the communist revolution. They mm. They are all about the suzerain um who was who was this really fascinating leader uh i mean you know obviously evil <laughs> um royal but um uh but but certainly interesting um uh there are there's the union which shows up which is just like deeply corrupt it's very much a critique of you know the kind of neoliberal transformation in trade unionism that's happened over the past 40 years or so it was difficult for us in the show to kind of get handles on it because it, this, this is a very much a kind of European and Eastern European perspective, Eastern European perspective on that. We have a very different kind of relationship with unions in the US. Mm. Um, so that was the one that was most difficult to kind of get with the, I don't know, uh, the the flavor of cynicism going on. Mm. So that's all to say like, and then there are um, noble people in poverty, right? Um, and that's, that's also a hard, you know, pill for me to swallow in some ways. Um, it does seem like the people who are least judged or, or least cynical toward are people who are like deeply in poverty, who live in the fishing village with a heart of gold. And that's also not, (laughs) I I think that maybe is uh, attempting to, to be positive in some ways, but also uh, doesn't have the kind of, mm, I don't know, a positive politics flavor to it. Right. I mean. Um, we can go read John Steinbeck any day we want. So, uh, so that's all to say, you know, I agree with your, you know, the initial thing. I do think it's, you know, fascinating as an object because it's one of the few things that exist that have an explicit and direct critique, even though it's through this kind of science fiction, uh, you know, universe. Um, it has an explicit and direct critique of our contemporary political condition, but it also seems to be very cynical about modes of operation beyond that other than like, you know, just good human will and and the hope of the human might get us out of it uh, or or the hope of nature, which kind of happens at the end of the game. And I think both of those are not particularly compelling when you have to, you know, make life livable for billions of people. Uh, You know, if if that's the goal at the end of the day, you know, I I think it's hard to talk about this without saying that, um, you know, the Chapo Trap House people are uh, a huge number of the voices in the game. And so, you know, I don't want to say that this is like an appendage of the dirtbag left or anything, because that's not the case. But I do think that there is a certain kind of universal cynicism or or a universal um, uh, everyone's a little bit wrong vibe to it. Uh, that permeates throughout the work Um, which is fine I don't think that you know I guess I don't think that you know that you have to be like here's the one right political program and there's no (laughs) no problems with that right Mm -hmm. I think they're trying to deliver some grays um, but the I don't know the aesthetic vibe of the way that those grays are delivered is a little bit a little bit of a bummer but yeah go ahead
0: yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, I wonder if the, I've never listened to an episode of Chapo Trap House, and I wonder if I had, if that might have affected how I see this game in some way, because like, yeah, I don't want to get into conversation about whether Trap of Trap House gets good politics or not. I don't, I see people talk about them online a lot, I don't really know, like, yeah, I've just never listened to them, not particularly interested, when I played the game, I just heard some voices, I didn't know... Um, I didn't know who these people were. So if I had listened to them, and if I knew what their politics were precisely, that might affect how I see things. I don't know. Um, On the union point, uh, I don't know if this is a different reading, but I saw it slightly differently to you in that instead of thinking of like, how unions have been transformed kind of you know, under neoliberalism whatever i was thinking about the fact that because the, the union in the game i feel is kind of represented as being uh like an ancestor of the communist revolution to, to some extent or like being connected to it politically like not that they're the same thing but but it's like mm-hmm. of that allegiance um bearing in mind that this was created by an eastern european studio who would have uh a, a country that would have uh, been under uh, communism it made me think more of like a kind of um i thought of it more as like a representation of like that kind of corrupt uh cronyism brand of communism that existed actually existed in uh eastern europe that may not be a correct reading but that's how it's that's how it came across to me um Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and uh no, I I no, I think that's right in some ways. Um you know, and I think it's also kind of a critique of like almost the like the German union model where like the face of the thing is all um um you know, like we're the workers, we're doing great, everything's happening and beneath that one level deeper is just uh, you know, a tight connection to the the you know, the capitalist state. Yeah. Um also the union you know employs one of the most explicit white supremacists in the uh, in the game as well right Measurehead um hmm. a um you know who is Seminese, so is from the Caribbean right um you know the, or from the analog to the Caribbean and yet is the largest proponent of race science you know of straight up eugenics hmm. uh, in the game right so um you know there's that complication to it as well or that kind of addition to it is that the union the union will take anybody as long as they're they're good with the union right mm. um and so there's that kind of additional point of critique as well uh, that's happening yeah.
0: so uh i'm gonna have to disagree with you on the on the so you, you kind of said you feel like it's deeply cynical and it's kind of this uh, got this uh yeah south part thing of like everybody's idiots everybody's mm-hmm. stupid um I personally didn't feel like that was that was the the case like I felt so I think it certainly does that in terms of the way it represents the the um capitalist factions broadly speaking um it's very I I think it it uh spends a lot of time kind of um taking aim at like centrism in particular it seems to be one of its favorite targets mm-hmm. um which I, th- I think it does quite well it's quite enjoyable i mean it has the the um moralist international the game tells us that their unofficial motto is for a moment there was hope which is kind of perfectly zones in on this idea of like yeah this is it now um this is what we have nothing's ever going to change so uh yeah we're just going to stick around here um when it came to the the so though it does, so as you said, it does take aim at like the union, the union faction, it does kind of show this corruption there. Um, we meet a representative of the old communist faction, which it feels like it's critical of as well. But it felt to me like there was a sympathy with the principles that were supposed to underpin those factions, uh, in a way that didn't exist with uh like the, the, the capitalist factions there, there's kind of this idea of like this is what they are. Anything they claim to stand for is like deep, deeply cynical attempt to provide some cover to what they actually want to do. Like they don't believe anything. With the with the with the communist faction or the union faction, it felt like there was an idea that some people may actually like believe something, or at least they 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 have some principles of value that may not have manifested in the best of ways they may not have played out in the way you want them to but it feels like they they they're trying to identify there's something of value there did you do you not feel that to be the case
1: no i think that's true i you know i I, i'm I'm coming in hot uh, with my critique uh but i mean i think that's right i think there's more sympathy um for those characters and but those are i guess my my split point right is that there is a political program the the moral intern in the kind of like capitalist neo capitalist hyper capitalist you know it kind of depends if you if you meet the uh, <laughs> yeah. the big exploding head guy in the um in the uh shipping container right he 's like the ultra capitalist and you can talk with him too and get that kind of a whole perspective but yeah i think there there's a general kind of critique that 's happening with them as a class i mean I think that there is class based critique here. But it's the shape of the alliance with the, you know, the more communistic or even kind of anarchist adjacent stuff. I mean, the good characters that exist in the world, right? The characters who have what seem to be left-leaning politics, who are, uh, you know, we're able to empathize with, and were written, uh, and they're written in such a way as to encourage empathy. It's like a small business owner uh, you know, who makes dice and mm-hmm. uh, you know, like hangs out and just watches things as they happen. Or it's the kind of noble poor that exists in the fishing village. Um or it's like the the poet truck driver, right? You know, the, the working class. I think that there's a, a sympathy with the working class and a kind of in a broader sense a Mournfulness of what could have been, particularly with the Communards um, th- that happened. But to me, it's almost like this—I don't know—political um, nostalgia for what could have been. Um, and and I guess maybe if you know the the charitable way to read this, and, and maybe this is the intended reading here, is that that in the current moment. The ability to do these things is so thoroughly stamped out that the the best chance you get is like a student who lives in an apartment with a, a Karl Marx you know bust in it, and that like that's the political capability of the moment, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in the next moment, perhaps it is potential that that Martinez or Jamrock or one of these kind of areas. Um, you know, development zones or whatever that one of those will spark the next moment but but to me it seems like whatever has happened there's such deep melancholy for the potential of the communist past because it is so deeply consigned into the past and I just don't I mean maybe this is my disconnect right I just don't feel that in the contemporary world I mean I think the world that we live in is like you know uh, the, the boot stamping on a human face for sure uh, especially with the kind of Rightward swing of of many of like a huge number of you know the, the so called leading democracies of the world mm. right um you know so like I feel kind of a, a, a deep um, anxiety as we you know for example slide into a climate collapse but I also feel like you know this is a moment this is uh, uh you know the kind of political moment up through occupy through. Uh, the movement for black lives into the kind of thing that's happening now, not to say that one is coming from the other, just thinking of things that in the U S have really um, galvanized uh, my generation in particular Um, that those movements are broadly, I mean, they are anti-capitalist movements. Um, They are movements that are for political liberation. They are movement. They are broad. They are international. Um, Uh, you know, the movement for black lives has, has changed things in a significant way, has changed the conversation and has changed politics in the U S, um, in, in significant ways, despite everything, uh, you know, (laughs) every political party being against, uh, in a general sense, (laughs) what, what they're doing. Right. Um, you know, there, there seems to be a general agreement, very much moral intern style. Right. Um, And so, you know, for me, I don't, I don't really have a deep melancholy of what could have been, um, I'm hyper excited about what is happening and what is being produced and the kind of connections to the past that are being drawn. And so, you know, I don't know, there's been a long form, um, critique of left melancholy in the world. And maybe that's the, the kind of roundabout thing that I am articulating here is that, it seems to be that the good politics are are inevitably unrescuable from the past uh, in the face of, you know, the the, the violence of the shock doctrine and of general capitalism and, you know, uh, currency manipulation and de-development and all of these different things. And yet, you know, that seems insufficient to the real world we live in, in which there is um, an oncoming climate nightmare. Um at the same time of there being, you know, radical new ways that people are advocating for themselves and advocating for political change. Um, It's certainly, you know, the past five years are so different from, um, you know, the previous three decades. That seems exciting to me.
0: Yeah, I think um, it's definitely a game that in terms of, like, um, so yeah, anti-capitalist, yes, but in terms of identifying, like, where it sees like the the potential for like moving past that or finding something to be like you're saying to to, to be excited about whether uh struggles a lot more like um i think it, so i said before that, that martinez it feels like a place that's like at the end of history that's like in a stasis that's like crumbling at the edge of time so it's, it's kind of like representative of this political blockage that it's concerned with of of yeah the end of history of of uh the the end of hope like permanent neoliberal capitalism and it feels like it has this idea that or this sense that something there's the potential for something here to emerge like the, the whole conflict in the game between so this whole conflict between the union and like the, the capitalist factions and this idea that something's gonna happen, <laughs> like there's these two sides. Um, this, is, this is like a powder keg and something's gonna happen, but it doesn't know what it is and it doesn't know where it's gonna mm-hmm. come from uh, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and, you know, maybe that's the sequel, right? Because the the game is not quite set up, I don't think, for an immediate sequel, but, you know, the uh, Kervitz, Robert Kurvitz, I think is the name, the, you know, kind of one of the lead developers and kind of long-form storytellers. You know, he's written a novel that's in this world that is not translated into English, I don't think, but he's written a novel. He's been running tabletop games in this universe for, like, 10, 15 years, and so he has this, like, whole you know, I don't know, metaphorical universe, right? Mm. Um, Analog universe to the one that we live in um, kind of set up with all of its political connections and things like that. And so, you know, I would be really shocked, in fact, if Disco Elysium 2 or whatever it's called didn't pick up some of the kind of threads here, um, you know, politically. You know, I don't think I, I don't. I don't want to be, um, you know, misinterpreted as being like, oh, well, it doesn't offer a good politics, and so, or you know, a clear, yeah, the, the yeah, solution political outcome, the and so
0: we, <laughs> the solution's over for a couple. exactly. Right. It?
1: Yeah, and I don't think you have to no. do that, you know. I, but I, I would have loved, you know, uh, a couple more characters who, um, uh, you know, I don't know, gave us maybe a little bit more perspective on it. There's a lot of of words in this very wordy game. Uh, spent from people in power explaining to the player how they're in power and why they're in power and why that's a good thing. And there is a fraction of that dedicated to critiques of that. Mm. And it seems to me very weird that, for example, in a place like Martinez with a a fairly large immigrant population, that there are no immigrant groups um, that are represented here in the sense of that have some sort of um, you know, ethnic or political identity that that they are, are using to leverage here. And that could be because the state has so thoroughly failed in Martinez. I mean, there's a, a very explicit critique of of state management through the police in particular that's happening in Disco mm-hmm. Elysium. But, um, but, you know, I, I, I think that in that, you know, within that purview, right, that's often where non-state groups begin to step in and do things. And we get a lot of conversation about like quote unquote gangs in in Jamrock. Um and there is a gang in in this um uh in in Disco Elysium, mm-hmm. in Martinez, uh you know, the uh the Hardy boys mm-hmm. who are a um uh you know, a, an informal group of police. I mean, we're pretty explicitly told that they police the community, but they're employed by the union. So there's this really tight connection between the union and this kind of like informal police force slash militia that's that exists so but you know it it seems to me like if the real connection to real world politics is to be made it's one that has to take seriously a little bit more um i don't know the kind of on the ground politics of independent organization that happens um but you know there's there's a whole world of of things to follow up on and I think that would be an interesting thing to see in in any kind of game coming from Studio alm in the future
0: yeah. um yeah i think uh I just want to say i think you, the the point you made about the the kind of uh the way it represents like the poor characters in the game um as you said, it has it has empathy with with those characters, I think, which is uh, in a general sense good. Um, I, I hadn't considered the the way the extent to which, uh, as you said, it does this thing of like the 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 noble poor, which can be, as you said, can be a problem. Uh, I hadn't particularly thought of that, but but I think you're right. Um, so that there's a there's this, um, yeah, I guess if people don't want to talk about like I'm talking about th- there's this tendency to yeah kind of elevate the the idea of poverty is like almost like romanticizing it like this thing of like being really like really dignified which um it, it's not um but which i don't mean how do i describe that like that yeah this idea of, like one of the the things that's horrible horrible about being poor is the the way that the the system you live in like takes away your dignity and uh Any yeah, it, it, anytime you kind of represent it as being this kind of romanticized um highly dignified thing that that's a bit of a problem but um in general i i like the way that i think the game because the game spends a lot of time on like constructing this political history this this whole economic history of like what this place is and how it came came to be um i think the way it situates a lot of the poor characters is quite uh useful in terms of even even some of the characters which uh I'm not sympathetic so in terms of uh, there's a alcoholic guy who like beats uh, his children that he's not represented sympathetically I don't think the game like makes excuses for him but I think it does try to like say look here's the history of this place uh here's what this kind here's the kind of conditions that this economic situation creates here's the conditions that this political situation creates and if you create those kind of conditions you're gonna these kind of problems are gonna emerge which um yeah is i don't think it justifies like these those kind of things but i think that context uh is uh i think it's uh useful perspective
1: yeah yeah i i mean i i think in some places it gets a little bit like law and order <laughs> you know like law and order like the tv show um in it's like um i don't know salaciousness maybe you know right. so for example right one of the, one of the big characters in the game is the kuno which who who is this like asshole 11 year old <laughs> who is addicted to amphetamines right and and he's like creating a night city which is a piece of installation art that's about like collecting i forget like locusts and having them eat a pig's head while he's like doing uh like a severed pig's head while he's like doing amphetamines near them so like he's got a lot going on you know his his uh father is hyper abusive Um, all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he, he says all these slurs, he calls you slurs constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, he's, he is living outside of, of the home with his father because he is, um, because his father's like beating him all the time and things like that. And so he has to. Um, like live in a sewer. There's all this stuff, right? And and at some point in that, it becomes overbearing because, of course, people like this person exists in the world. You know, the, the human experience is varied enough, and the world is big enough that we, we there's nothing we can posit that probably is not happening to someone somewhere. Mm. Um, and so, certainly, this exists. But but it it you know there's this kind of fine line between characterization of the world and character characterization for salaciousness and. I think that this game does such a good job of in its characters explaining where their ideology comes from and why they're attached to it. So for example, there's a character called the racist lorry driver who's like working class. He drives a truck and he's just a racist, right? Like he he just says things to your partner, Kim Kitsaragi, that are racist in nature and you can talk to him about it and you can have this conversation and he's just kind of like your you know, I don't know, like, uh, middle of the road, right winger, you know, racist right winger. Um, and, and so it, but it, it, the, the kind of clever, detailed, explicit way that that kind of character is drawn or the, or the union boss, or even, um, you know, uh, like some of the people in the fishing village, uh, which is kind of one level of poverty deeper, you know, in some yeah. ways, like they're not even, they don't even have an apartment complex, right? You know, they're, they're, you know, the, the game is saying explicitly there's like levels of poverty that are at work in, yeah. the, in this world. Um, that, that, that kind of, I don't know, um, low level writing, um, uh, you know, this kind of like, well, here's this person and here's all their assumptions. It makes someone like the Kuno or it makes someone like Measurehead feel like a cartoon character sometimes. And it's a cartoon character who, again, kind of South Park mm-hmm. problem vibes to it, who in its extremity, um takes away i think in some ways from what's actually being delivered which is this is just a kid right who is like trying to grow up and is 100% a product of the the extremely hyper local conditions that that he exists in and there might be like some upside for this kid you know there there is a uh there is a possible ending for Disco Elysium that allows you to recruit the Kuno into the Revachol police mm. force like that's a thing yeah. you can do, and th- that's really interesting. Also, kind of points out some of the, uh, I think, ideological weird limits that are going on in this game. Uh, that the best thing yeah. for this kid is to go yeah. join the cops. <laughs> yeah, I, you yeah. know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know about that necessarily. But, um, but, but, so that's all to say, right? Like, I, I, I think I agree in in a broad sense that I think that the way the world is drawn. Um, You know, the bookstore owner, there's a bookstore owner character who believes that just by naming her store, she believes two different things. She believes that like people only read certain genres of books and so she only stocks those books and the name of the of of the store is something like. It's like fantasy something in biographies of famous people. And that's the name of the bookstore. And so it's like this deeply, you know, unsure small business owner uh, who also believes really heavily in like uh, like wards and signs and symbols and things like that that will make her business a success. You know, she believes really strongly in this like supernatural element um, in order to make her business. And you get such a fine construction of like, the pure ideology of capitalism right like if you do everything Mm -hmm. right and the the stars are in your favor then why aren't things working out for Mm -hmm. her right and it's because she has opened a bookstore in one of the most impoverished areas of the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know in this fictional world right has nothing to do with with uh you know anything that we would call like meritocratic right but she believes she's in a meritocracy and if she does all these things correctly and, you know, has the right stars that things are going to work out. And so I think there's are su- such touching characters. The, also, the anarchist um, uh, writer woman, uh, or not writer, but artist, who is doing the, the um, fuel paintings that you can see around. Um, I think that's really great. Uh, so I think I agree with you. That's a long uh, response to what you just said to say. I agree that there's some really well-painted and well-drawn characters that really kind of show the reality of um trying to make your life in deep 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 neoliberalism um and extractive you know kind of neo-colonial neoliberalism at the same time both of those things are kind of happening in in Martinez um but the landmark you know characters that do some of that work are really really broadly drawn in in a weird way
0: uh yeah i think um the kudo example you gave us a perfect example of that because you're right you, you can see like the way that he's been kind of adopted on the internet is like kind of comedy uh fun like mascot um kind of speaks to exactly what you're saying about the, the way that, that that he's been been drawn so yeah i think you're yeah absolutely right um yeah he's
1: got i mean he's got the great line you know uh, fuck does Kuno care? <laughs> and he says that about everything. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's it, He's yeah, he's a charming, you know, little jackass. Um, but and and you know, you're supposed to dig in and find the trauma. Mm. And even that to me, that that move is, is a little bit gross too. But anyway, sorry. Not to I don't want to have the, the Kuno hours. <laughs> <okay>.
0: Sorry. Right. <laughs> um Yeah. Um and also yeah the the point you made this is game very concerned with like ideology and like how it operates and how it becomes embedded in, in people's heads and how it affects the way they see the world um which i guess is a point of the part of the skill system because you the depending on how you you um upgrade your skill system you perceive the world that uh, your character perceives the world in, in very different ways um but anyway, um, so I wanted to ask you, we, we kind of touched on this a bit, but um, in terms of the, the the factions in the game, which uh, you, you might call, um, or the faction in the game, which you, you might call the, the kind of utopian alternative in terms of uh, the, the communist faction, or like, that was a utopian alternative, the failed communist revolution. Um, there's mm-hmm. a... So towards... The, uh, um obviously spoilers if you haven't already like i presume we've been doing that already but whatever so towards the end of the game you uh go to an island and meet a character called the deserter who is like the kind of Im- the embodiment of this old communist revolution he was formerly a, a part of the the revolution he's been on this island by himself all this time uh he is of course still anti-capitalist he 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 kind of shares the broad perspective of the game on capitalism, I would say. There's this whole bit where he talks about them putting down the revolution. Uh, He says the combined might of international capital all at once. All the greed and terror in the world tore into Refico. The mask of humanity fell, to capital, fell from capital. It has to take it off just for one second to do the deed. I would say this is broadly like the perspective of the way the game and the developers think about capitalism. But there's a sense that he's kind of like a zombie, right? He's just like been stuck since that failed revolution. He, But he, he says the revolution's dead. It's like no longer a possibility. So he has the same perspective of like we're at the end of history. Like this is it now. Uh, that's all over Um, which I I kind of uh, at the time I think found it a bit difficult to interpret what the game was trying to say there I just wondered what you read in the figure of the deserter and what if anything you think he's supposed to say about like communism or alternatives to capitalism
1: yeah i mean i don't know right like i you know i we really we do a full episode uh on this it, it uh you know so if people you know check out mages and murder dads um we do a full episode almost on this kind of conversation something that my uh co-host danny pointed out uh that's that's important to this is that you know he's the person who does the murder that starts off the whole thing, yeah. right? He he basically makes this impossible sniper shot with iron sights for, you know, I don't know, a thousand yards or something like that. It's like truly an, an impossible yeah. shot. Um, and he does it and he like shoots uh, this person who eventually ends up kind of hanged and, and you know, you find out that's a cover-up. No, I don't want to get too specific about it. But part of the reason that he does that is that... Uh, he's a nationalist. Um, he didn't like the idea of having to watch, because uh, I guess he could see it through his, you know, like a telescope or something. Mm-hmm. He didn't like watching this um, uh, guy from another country, another nation, having sex with um, uh, this woman that he idealizes. Mm-hmm. Idealizes, and he like really attaches this to like I don't know a politics of ownership over her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over her body. She also is not from here, but she is from Oranye, which is like referred to as the old, old country. Um, I don't know what that means, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, but there's this sense of like, you know, if it's old Europe, right? Like it's it's this kind of like, I, I don't know, um, ancient cultures vibe mm. to it, you know? I don't know. It's complicated to get into. And I'm not quite sure what the game is saying there, but, but there's this kind of thing of like, he's the the communist true believer and he's continuing to fight the war. But the reason that he commits the murder that starts the whole thing off is because he wants to possess the body of a woman. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a long history of, of, um, you know, science fiction kind of operating on possession of the body of women in a general sense. You know, Marianne Doan has written really interesting stuff about that in the past if you're interested in science fiction studies, kinds of stuff. Um, and so it's weird, you know, I, I think it's keeping that in perspective too. And this is my like kind of universal cynicism belief about the game is like, yeah, there like communism could have happened. And in fact did happen for a short moment here in this place. And yet the holdover from it is, you know, an, uh, an old warrior, a cold warrior in some ways, right? A cold warrior who's a misogynist. Um, and, uh, who fundamentally just believes that a woman is, is property for him. And so even that, you know, this kind of mythological communism of, of the one who never gave it up, even that is like not useful in any kind of way. And I totally get that. Like I totally get if, if, you know, being from Eastern Europe or, you know, uh, of, of, you know, a former communist nation and being like, yeah, this ain't yeah. it, <laughs> you know, this was insufficient to, to do the stuff that, that people needed it to. And I think that that kind of rocks differently, you know, for someone, for example, in the U S where for us, communism is entirely, you know, uh, either, uh, uh, it, you know, construction of a war, you know, mm-hmm. the cold war and, and everything that, that happened there. Or it is, you know, uh, the way that we purged everyone even remotely to the left of center, you know, several times throughout the 20th century Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and and demonized anyone who wasn't straight and white uh, and a a man for the most part. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, look at the the kind of way that um, uh, uh, the state has been used in various ways against, you know, um, uh, anti-capitalist black movements in the United States. Uh, against uh, people just who were not straight in Hollywood, right? The 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 uh, McCarthy trials are kind of partially based on that stuff, mm. uh, around policing of sexuality in particular. So um, that's all to say, right? There, there's this kind of different, I don't know, kind of moment of hmm, uh, relationship to the communist specter, right? Of... Mm. And and this one communist figure has to stand in for all of that. And I think that, that the developers know that. And that's why there is this such weird ambivalence around this character is that he... I think you're right. I think the word zombie is right. You know, he ultimately is a holdover from something that can't live into the mm. present. And so I think kind of, you know, procedural rhetoric-wise or kind of narratively-wise, the game is asking us to say okay, well then what is the way that we capture something that is good out of, you know, uh, politics for people and then bring it into the present? Because obviously this, like, communist holdover isn't sufficient to do that. And that's, again, why I keep going back to the kind of noble poor because it seems like that's the best place for the emergence of new politics in this game. And it's like, you know... oh a fisherwoman and like a woman who owns a house, you know, that's, that's, and they're just good people in a general sense. And like, they want to have a better life than the one they live in. And to me, that's like the exact same logic of like, well, the best way to make the world better is to give everyone in the world a small business loan, uh, you know, and allow them to turn their fishing business into a fishing business. And that also, you know, doesn't seem to be sufficient to me to move the world, the world forward. So, I don't know. I mean, it is interesting, though, that um, that you haven't talked about the thing that's underneath the communist, you know, the, the thing that's allowed him to, I don't know, live his life in the way that he has.
0: Are we talking about the um, magical, What's it called? what is it? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Even. yeah, the, the magical, the magical bug. bug. Yeah, the giant <laughs> magical cryptid. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a huge cryptid here, right? I mean, this is this is my reading of the end of the game. I mean, since we're we're in the end of the game and spoilers, right? <laughs> People could be very confused if they
0: haven't played this game. Oh, yeah, the I, giant I, magical I think cryptid. Be fine. Uh,
1: yeah, the giant magical cryptid. There's like several things you do to find this magical cryptid, but there's this creature at the end of the game that um you can speak to and it's basically like it pre-exists all of human history and it will live on after us and it re- reproduces um you know, uh, um, oh, oh, I can't by itself. I can't remember what the exact word for that is. Um, it reproduces by itself. Um, and it sees human consciousness as, as an infection in the world, mm-hmm. uh, basically that pushes everything else out of it. And so there's this kind of like rhetorical move of the guarantor of nature that like, no matter what humans do underneath that is like the Royal of the earth. And you know, that w- that guarantees futurity for something. And that to me is like deep that's some Cormac McCarthy like apolitical stuff, mm. right? And I like Cormac McCarthy. I'm like, that's not a critique necessarily going on there, but like that does not seem to me to be a guarantor of anything. That like, oh, nature's gonna keep on rolling and uh, there's a big old bug out there and it's it's gonna hang out and hope that we all die off. That that's insufficient to me too. So i don't know but you know i guess all of that response just goes back to saying i don't know what to do with this communist um i think that well let me say this let me flip it how many games can we point to that have this kind of depth to them that reward this level of discussion
0: yeah not too many (laughs) right and
1: especially a political discussion right so like I know across this whole episode, I've said a lot of things that are a little bit, you know, maybe maybe a lot, I don't know, <laughs> that are critical of the game, but but ultimately, it's a it's a, um, a criticism that emerges from like a deep engagement. The game is worth engaging mm. with, right? It's it's worth thinking with, um, in the same way that you would engage with and think with a work of theory. Uh, or or uh, you know, um, you know, the Lukachian novel, right? Like it's doing politics. it is it is expressing um, some political dead ends or knots or complications that have to be worked through in our contemporary period. I mean, I think that it's right in that way. Um, just the way that that things kind of shake out in the end, I don't think is particularly helpful for me personally. But I think it's, you know, if we're talking about stepping stones for thinking about these problems in the world, I think it's a, a, a profound, uh, you know, step in the right direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I did mention the magical bug because like you, I didn't really find anything particularly of value there. I, di- I, I didn't really know how to interpret as the truth of it. Has like I don't really know what this magical bug is talking about or why <laughs> what, what it's here. but um, yeah, certainly with the with the with the communist, I, I think I have a similar idea to you in terms of like th- th- there's this idea of like this thing, like this response to this alternative to capitalism in this particular form, like this isn't like this doesn't work. This is this this isn't it, as you said. But yeah, as I said before, I feel like the game tries to at the very least like say like okay but under this idea under this the the thing that kind of created this um particular brand of communism were ideas of like solidarity and collectivity and equality they ended up being expressed they ended up like creating this thing this isn't this is no good anymore this is this doesn't work we we can't use this um but that doesn't mean that like this is why why I say I don't see it as this is why I don't see it as being cynical because it you know a lot of um media not just games does this thing of like uh, here's one political position and uh here are the problems here and here's the other political position and here there are the problems there so they're both uh the same basically and you can't do politics (laughs) without like basically anytime you try to do something you're doomed like you you can't do anything but i feel like this game when it's representing those factions it's saying nevertheless like those principles that that were there in the beginning they still have value like just because this this version of communism was turned out like this that doesn't mean that like we can't uh have like uh something else like an alternative that is is viable so that's why i I would not personally call the game cynical um i think i see a bit of that in the hardy boys as well this gang that we mentioned which like are presented as to a degree as being like union thugs like i think they are supposed to be that to a degree like like you say they do do this role of like policing the community and there is this suggestion that they have done something of value in the absence of the authorities caring about that place. So this, there's this idea like, yeah, these this, these people, they are thugs, kind of, and they are like a gang and they do do bad things. But also, like, they have done some good things. And there's an idea, like, they all um, confess to a crime that they didn't commit to, like, protect someone else. So we see, like, these ideas of community and solidarity. And I feel like like again the hardy boys as like union thugs like this isn't this isn't the solution but there are some principles here that are valuable and aren't delegitimized just because they haven't been expressed in the perfect way here that's how i would personally kind of uh read it um
1: yeah. I, and I think that's you know there's no uh or at the bottom of all of the like explicitly capitalist characters there's not a concern for human beings I mean no, uh, you yeah, know I think yeah. there you know at the end of the day at least everyone who is vaguely lefty leaning seems to give a shit about people and uh no one <laughs> who is who is an express capitalist cares about people okay. um you know i think that still puts you in some weird spots with some characters you know i'm thinking about the uh, the guy who's selling clothes out of the back of his truck mm-hmm. um uh, you know the pawn shop owner uh, as well some some additional characters but but no i think you're i think you're broadly right i think it you know i think i would still call it mm, i you know i i would still call it cynical but okay. but i think that i think you're right i think that there is a um broad alignment of the game with those perspectives i think it's still i think i think it's still critical of them um or okay. perhaps uncharitable toward them in some ways okay. but you know that's art that's how it goes
0: yeah but yeah as you as you say definitely <laughs> a game that's like f- f- definitely engaged with with politics and it provides yeah, the the yeah provides the platform to like have those kind of conversations discussions yeah so that's definitely and, cool you know,
1: think of I mean, like like you were just talking about a, a second ago, right? I mean, think about the closest analog we have in games to something like this is, like, weird big strategy games, right, that never narrativize this kind of thing. It's just like, oh, wow, it's interesting the things we can learn when we, uh, you know, turn, turn our civilization to a green communist civilization. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that's never narrative content in games. Or, like, the absolute idiocy of, like, of uh like bioshock infinite right <laughs> of like uh there's a there's a revolution by people who are structurally oppressed within the very bones of the society but guess what? They're just as bad. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the level of discourse that we're at within, within video game culture, and especially, you know, prominent video games. Mm. I think that they're, they're, you know, I don't want to throw uh, the world underneath the bus here. You know, there, there are artists like Celestia, right, who are mm. making games that are anti-capitalist, that I think, are, are really fascinating, really interesting. You know, this is not a video game problem in the sense of the medium, but yeah. it is certainly a kind of mainline popular video
0: game problem. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, one other thing uh, I wanted to ask you about. Um, so uh, I, I, I read an article by um, Bart Howe that was published uh, on Knife, which is a good magazine online that, that uh, you'll probably be already be familiar with if you've listened to the podcast a few times. Um, he wrote an article called The Future Echoes of Disco Elysium, which was kind of reading the game as being about hauntology, uh and and kind of um, interpreting that that way um seeing as as you're the academic Cameron uh not because I don't understand the concept or anything um would you would you mind uh explaining briefly like what uh hauntology is to people because yeah I just found this to be an interesting reading of the game and I wanted to know what you think about it so yeah maybe you could tell us what hauntology is and whether you find that to be a compelling lens to look at the game through or not
1: yeah sure yeah so so hauntology comes out of the work of uh, jacques derrida um uh comes out of his book specters of marx i think it's 1991 I, that's just coming off the dome so if, if i'm wrong uh, please everyone forgive me but it comes out of specters of marx um and it's derrida kind of working through a more explicit engagement with marxist thought through the you know the work of deconstruction that he'd been doing at that point for gosh 30 years right somewhere around there um the the idea behind hauntology is uh how how do the structuring um pieces of of a given thing right a concept uh, uh, uh i don't know a formulation whatever how do those original kind of structuring pieces show up in weird ways later on down the line um so you know the kind of um uh, uh, phrase that opens that book and the, the thing that that Derrida works through in the book and I think in the first chapter first essay whatever it is um, is the Shakespeare line you know time is out of joint um, and so uh, you know think of it in that way right how do pieces of the past show up in the present in ways that are perhaps surprising and foreclose options and, and if we can kind of work that backward to how foreclosure happens, how do we produce something different? So it's kind of deconstruction um, uh, tr- doing its version of Marxist materialism. You know, Marxist materialism is going to give you a pretty straight line uh, between developments, historical developments that produce things in the world. Derrida's got a little bit more of a complicated relationship to that, but ultimately he's after that, right? How, how do structural principles kind of come back to haunt in weird ways that we might not be prepared for? Um, And when they when they happen, how do they surprise us and how do we think about it? Mark Fisher takes this and kind of, I would say, radicalizes it. It happens across a whole bunch of his work um, from Flatline Constructs on. Um, Fisher is a little bit more interested in the aesthetic version of this. You know, I wouldn't say that Derrida's version is a, a theory of aesthetics, I would say that Fishers is a theory of aesthetics, meaning that you know, uh, in Ghosts of My Life, his uh, second book, I guess, um, he writes about hearing Amy Winehouse's cover of Valerie. Um, I'm forgetting who uh, did it originally, but it, it's a cover of a song that was only a couple of years old when it came out. But it's done mm. in the Amy Winehouse retro tone, right? Mm. Maybe the Zutons is it the Zutons who did it originally.
0: Um, uh i don't know well, th- this is Maybe. your country <laughs> 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 come
1: on you're responsible oh, for all culture that it emanates from <laughs> it. um but but yeah so right so but the amy winehouse version you know it's in in her style and so it's this kind of retro uh cover right big band version of yeah. this pop song and so uh, Mark Fisher describes walking through a mall and hearing it and being like, oh, that's the original song. That's interesting. I've never heard this before. And then he realizes later that, like, oh, no, that's not the original version. Right. And so, again, time is out of joint. Right. That there's this kind of aesthetic uh, involution that has happened with late capitalism that has produced conditions under which we can't really, where the future and the past and the present are all kind of mixed in, or actually, I guess it's the past, just the past and the present, are mixed in with one another in ways that they are difficult to um, kind of uh, explode and then analyze in a good way. And Fisher is interested in this because um, it's it's kind of this like, sometimes a dead end for him in the sense of like, it doesn't, it it makes it unable to produce the future, right? This kind of capitalist realist, there's no future possibility scenario, but on the other hand, sometimes that's remixable and reorientable to get into the future. So, uh, you know, kind of, I think his writing on burial, for example, leans into that in some ways, these sounds of the future, very much like Kodo Eshun kind of stuff, um, contemporary stuff. And so, um, so that's all to say, right? So I totally see ontology like conceptually showing up in disco Elysium in the sense that there's all kinds of as the piece that you're talking about talks about, right? There are all these like technological weird moments of future past production. So they have an internet, but it's an internet that requires you to physically call human beings to get to deliver passwords to unlock things that are already on hard drives. And they don't really have hard drives, they have tape drives. And um, it seems like the entirety of the past 40 years, 45 years or so since the communist revolution is just one big, you know, uh, trash pile of history, the Benjaminian, you know, uh, trash pile. And so I think for Fisher, hauntology was a way of sifting through the trash pile in some ways to figure out kind of lines of connection of possible mm, reorientation. I think Gary Davis is not as interested in that at all. But mm. um, in that regard, that kind of fisherian style, I think Disco Elysium is really caught up in that. You know, what are the bone? What are the bones of the now that can be rearticulated, reinvestigated, reoriented toward the future? And I think this is another moment where the leftist politics get complicated, but complicated in a way that encourages us to think about it. Is that you know that's not uh, in in the game, the the political future is not one in which you like pick up the bust of, of Kras Mazov, like Karl Marx figure, and like become the communist builder, right? Um, you know, kind of famously or, or interestingly, maybe not famously, but interestingly in the game there's this uh, thought that you can have in your head. There's a thing called the Thought Cabinet that we didn't even talk about. But, right. <laughs> uh, but it's like this where you like enter thoughts into your head and uh, they're prompted by things that happen in the game and then they change your stats, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's called The Suicide of Krasmazov. And so what happens is in the moments where communism is becoming most possible in the history of Revachol, Krasmazov kills himself, this Karl Marx figure. And the question there is why? Like, why did it happen? And this is the thought that, like, haunts you in in your thought catalog. Why did this happen? And when you get through that sh- thought, what you come to the conclusion of is that Krasomazov never killed himself, and he's still alive. Right. Right? And so, it's this kind of thing of, like, this... The, the past, in some ways here, is just a trap to fall into, right? Uh, mm. You know, the game is saying, look, maybe it's not worth considering. I think. The way I read that is, like, It is not worth uh, tricking yourself into believing that the past didn't happen, but rather trying to work through the implications of the past. And so I think that that's kind of, if if, uh, Disco Elysium is explicitly in conversation with kind of hauntological concepts, it's in order to do that, right? To give us an opportunity to re-articulate our own connections and relationships to the past. Um, The other thing I want to say here is that there's a whole genre of writing of like, this is how... Uh, Did you know Hauntology is here in this thing? And I don't think that's necessarily what's going on in um, this uh, Blood Knife piece, but it's something I see around. And what I would really encourage people to do is, it's hard to do and it's hard to get through, but I would really encourage people to read the Derrida, because the point of the Derrida is that everything is Hauntological, um, everything has the bones of the previous era in it and and those bones stick out, you know, of the flesh of the present in very bizarre ways. And part of the work of deconstruction in a general sense, and part of the work of hauntological analysis or thought for Derrida is, well, how do you see how the bones stick out and where do they connect to in the skeleton, right? Uh, you know, it's not just a, a reading of symptoms, it's a reading of causes and causes that might not be the things that you think. And so I think it's it's worth digging in, you know, past the Fisher. I think Fisher does a very good job of kind of rewriting hauntology toward aesthetics, but I think there's something deeply rewarding that goes beyond what Mark Fisher did with it uh, in the Derrida itself. So that's that's my pitch at the end to, uh, for
0: everyone to read Jacques Derrida. <laughs> okay, cool. Um... Uh, what, what, as we're uh, as we're at there, would you also like to make a pitch for for people who've enjoyed hearing about Disco Elysium uh, for where they can go and find your um, upcoming series about the game and, and so forth
1: yeah absolutely so if you uh want to complain about my uh opinions about this game if you want to uh, tell me my reading of hauntology is wrong uh, any of that kind of stuff you know uh because you know we all know the best explanations happen in five minutes of all the hardest concepts <laughs> <laughs> <Of course. laughs> uh, that's the, clearly the way you're supposed to do it um yeah if you want to do any of that you can go to twitter.com slash range to touch that's probably the best way to do it um that's going to show give you an intro into the world of all the interesting stuff we do at range touch uh as you said at the beginning of the show it's kind of a weird umbrella it's i guess a, a critical network maybe is the best way of putting it we don't have good messaging here obviously <laughs> um but uh, we do a show we've been doing a show for four or five years now called mages and murder dads where we have played through like i said these isometric rpgs and they kind of progeny Michael Lutz and I do a show called Too Much Future where we play through and critically analyze the Fallout games. We are finishing up Fallout 3 right now. Those are all on YouTube, youtube youtube.com slash rangedtouch. As you said earlier too, we also do a show called Game Study Study Buddies where we read academic works of game studies and then kind of talk through them and explain them and and try to make them accessible within two hours uh, to you know give you an idea what's happening in the books and also to kind of give you some scaffolding if you're interested in reading it yourself so it's kind of half like study guide and half um here's some information about a book that you might never read but nevertheless find interesting um you can uh (laughs) you can find that uh, at rangetouch.com com, or uh, as of this week, you can go to pure ideology. Biz to, to, to link right to it. Um, and um, uh, what else do we have going on? Oh, we got just King things where Michael and I read through the works of Stephen King in, in publication order. And we're just talking about it, which is really fun and exciting. Um, and uh, you can find that at rangetouch.com as well. So, uh, range touch has a lot of cool stuff, and if you like the conversations that happen on Utopian Horizons, I think we are um in uh, similar universes. You know, I think there's good strong cross pollination between um what we're up to and and what you you're up to uh, here at the show. You know, interesting critical discussion about the world um you know we're kind of angled toward literature and video games uh, specifically but um you know we get into all kinds of wild stuff you can't talk about those things without talking about all the other stuff in the world too yeah sure
0: okay well uh cool thanks for coming on to talk to me Cameron. it's been a lot of fun yeah absolutely thanks for having me That is the end of my conversation with Cameron. I hope you enjoyed it. If you've got any comments or questions or thoughts on on this particular episode or the show in general, or anything you'd like to see on the podcast, um, as I mentioned up top, you can email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Always nice to hear from people and and it'll be uh, fun to have some stuff I can engage with on on the show as well. That'd be cool. Um, Also, you can tweet me, At Utopian Horizons. Oh, something I didn't haven't mentioned for ages because I always forget. There is a Facebook page at facebook.com slash utopian horizons as well. Um, again, if you want to hear some more from me, then uh patreon.com slash utopian horizons. There's a whole bunch of of, uh bonus episodes there, including video game stuff, which maybe you're into if you've gotten this far in the show, in this episode, uh, about video game uh, Kentucky Route Zero is in there I think Paradise Killer I did an episode on for the Patreon maybe one or two other things as well so yeah that's the end of this episode um, I think I know what's next but not 100% got the um, yeah I got to read something got to sort the uh, sort of time for the interview so I'm not going to say what it is yet in case I end up um, switching things around a bit but my next my next probably three or four episodes I have a pretty good idea what they're going to be um but whatever it is I'll be back soon uh thanks for listening see you soon bye bye